The Island Digest is a sampling of the stories in this week's Journal of the San Juan, Islands Sounder, and Islands Weekly, which are on newsstands now. The January 3rd edition is brought to you by Orcas Center. I'm Caleb Summers. Happy New Year from the Island Digest. Because the Island Digest production team is out of town this week, We've compiled some of the top stories from 2023. Hope you enjoy, and come back next week for more fresh news from San Juan County, Washington. In this edition, Mysterious Tuna Death, Tokite Dies. New Sheriff, Prosecuting Attorney, Auditor, Take Office. Tale of a Tuna Gone Adrift, by Colleen Smith-Summers. In early July, the body of a flawless 250-pound, six-foot Pacific bluefin tuna washed ashore on Crescent Beach. It puzzled scientists, caught the attention of news outlets, and sparked a lively debate about how an animal never before seen in the Salish Sea appeared on Orcas Island. The cause of death has officially been determined. After venturing into inland waters, the tuna inadvertently beached itself. Sea Dog Society chief scientist Dr. Joe Gatos and communications manager Justin Cox, along with his ten-year-old son Noah, were some of the first locals on the scene on July 11th. In the months that followed, Cox created a deep-dive investigation into the incident on the Sea Dog Society's Pod of Orcus podcast, interviewing the scientist who performed the necropsy, kayakers who likely witnessed the tuna in East Sound in the days before its death, and the Orcus man who harvested 45 pounds of sushi before the body was hauled away. It was a blast, and I'm proud of it, Cox said. According to NOAA, most of the U.S. catch of Pacific bluefin tuna is within about 100 nautical miles of the California coast. They are highly migratory, traveling long distances throughout the Pacific Ocean, and found primarily in temperate ocean waters, but also in the tropics and cooler coastal regions. Bluefin tuna are a delicacy that can sell for millions of dollars, Fishermen have reported seeing them far offshore in Washington state, but never has one been documented in the Salish Sea. When Gatos first saw the fish on Crescent Beach, his reaction was, That is a big-ass tuna, although he wasn't precisely sure what type it was. Notably, it showed up the same day that the Field Guide to Fishes of the Salish Sea was released. After flipping through the pages and not seeing it in the guide, Gatos became excited. When it wasn't in the book, I knew this was something big, he said. Gatos sent a photo to Dr. Adam Summers of the University of Washington Friday Harbor Labs, who quickly responded, That is a bluefin tuna! By the time Gatos and Cox had arrived that morning, Orcas resident Josh Brown had harvested a 45-pound fillet. 
Gatos warned him against consuming the meat before a cause of death had been determined, but Brown was undeterred. He even lent his vintage army stretcher and helped Seadock staff transport the fish to the public dock in West Sound, where collaborators at the University of Washington Friday Harbor Labs picked it up to perform a necropsy. Justin's son, Noah, made a sign that read, Fish for Scientists, that was placed on the outside of the orange cadaver bag. It will stick with him forever, laughed Justin. Here's a World War II gurney with a six-foot tuna trailing blood. Upon receiving the body, Summers was amazed at the state of the fish, which he estimated to be eight years old. It was an incredibly fresh animal. There was arterial red blood, no coagulating, he said. It was such a lucky event. We had my whole lab and a group of high school students also stopped by. The tuna was in beautiful shape. Joe told me that a local grabbed a knife and cut off a quarter of the tuna's flesh, and I said, holy mackerel, we don't even know what killed it. It was a very good butchering job. Brown says he got a call early in the morning on July 11th from a friend who saw the fish. Upon seeing a photo, he immediately got in the car with the biggest fillet knife he owned, his stretcher, and a tarp. He arrived at Crescent Beach and identified the specimen as a bluefin. It looked entirely fresh, he said. I knew it hadn't been there long. When I cut into it, it was warm and it still bled. Brown vacuum-packed the fillets, and for the rest of the summer he fed it to friends and family, who dubbed his house the Sushi Lounge. He is a master chef, and the sushi was delectable, said daughter-in-law Laura Cussman. Once news of the tuna had spread, two Orcas kayakers realized they may have seen it around July 4th. Jean Agapoff and Hugh Everett, who often kayak off of Crescent Beach in the evenings, recalled seeing an animal swimming back and forth very quickly, leaving a ten-foot wake over the course of two days. They thought it may have been a minke whale due to its dorsal fin. It was an extremely bizarre swimming pattern under the bluff, Agapoff said. The following night we saw it again swimming along the beach, it was following the beach line very closely both nights. It made me feel like it was an animal pacing in a pen. It was like it was trapped. It was so agitated. Summers explained that bluefin tuna are not wired to understand tides or shorelines. He guesses that the tuna was traveling with a large class from California, heading to Japan, when he accidentally separated from the group. It was no great surprise that the kayakers saw a big panicked fish zipping back and forth, Summers said. Getting stuck is a death sentence. It's a very fast fish. He and his team determined from the gravel and sand in the tuna's gills and mouth that it made a bad choice about where to be when the tide dropped. He beached himself, and he died. He was in perfect condition, no bruising, no harm, Summers said. Once the exam was complete and it was confirmed that the fish was healthy, more fillets were harvested and shared among the scientists. 
It was fabulous meat. It did not go to waste, Summers said. The skeleton of the animal will be on display at the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, where it will be the first bluefin tuna specimen in the museum that came from the state of Washington. For now, scientists agree that the appearance of this tuna was a fluke, and that it is unlikely more will appear. We know we are at the precipice of change due to climate change and the ocean warming, but we can't say that this is a trend with one fish, Gatos said. The full episode can be heard on Sea Dog Society's Pod of Orcus podcast. Tokite's Death Ends Dream to Return Her Home by Kelly Belcombartuk The last remaining southern resident killer whale taken from the Salish Sea during the captures of the late 1960s and early 1970s died suddenly Friday, August 18th, in the small pool she'd spent the last 53 years living in. Lolita, a.k.a. Tokite, a.k.a. Skali Chuktenot, outlived over 50 other southern resident killer whales taken decades ago from Pacific Northwest waters at the Miami Sea Aquarium in Florida. In a statement released Friday from the Friends of Toki, a nonprofit working closely with the Miami Sequarium to return Tokite to the Pacific Northwest. Over the last two days, Toki started exhibiting serious signs of discomfort, which her full Miami Sequarium and Friends of Toki medical team began treating immediately and aggressively. Despite receiving the best possible medical care, she passed away Friday afternoon from what is believed to be a renal condition. Toki was an inspiration to all who had the fortune to hear her story, and especially to the Lummi nation that considered her family. Those of us who have had the honor and privilege to spend time with her will forever remember her beautiful spirit, the statement continues. Tokite's death was a shock heard around the world, especially when you consider this whale was on the verge of returning home, retiring after 53 years in show business. Following the decades of living in a small pool in the Miami heat, Tokite was actively being prepared for transport, including training exercises to familiarize herself with the sling she'd be lifted in when that fateful day arrived. In recent years, a number of critical factors had aligned to make her return to the Salish Sea a reality, so much so that there was genuine reason for hope and optimism that she would in fact experience the cold waters of the inland Salish Sea for the first time in over five decades. In an interview just prior to Tokite's death, Charles Vinnick spoke of the unprecedented changes that had led to the effort to bring Tokite home. First, the purchase of the Miami Seaquarium by the Dolphin Company and the reports from the USDA really galvanized the effort that led to where we are today, says Vinnick. Vinnick is executive director of the Whale Sanctuary Project and co-founder of Friends of Toki, a nonprofit corporation that was dedicated to supporting efforts to help improve the life and living conditions of Skali Chuktenat. I think most significantly, says Vinnick, about the recent groundswell of support for Skali Chuktanat that had been building, was 
the Lummi Nation, and particularly the Sacred Sea Sacred Lands Conservancy and Raynell Morris, Ellie Kinley, and Julie Trimingham, as a nonprofit organization that really were throughout 2019 leading the charge, if you will, to bring Toki home. Around that same time, Lummi more broadly were beginning to plan for and then do the totem pole journey around the country, and specifically back to Miami, says Finnick. So there was an indigenous effort to bring Toki home that we in the Whale Sanctuary Project were asked to assist with and were pleased to do so. At that time, Vinnick and others began to develop the beginning of an operational plan for this to be led and carried out by the indigenous tribes, and particularly by Lummi. So we worked with them in that regard. We certainly helped to look at sites. We modified the plans that we already had in place for moving cetaceans for the Whale Sanctuary Project, and we tailored this directly to the work for Toki, and that led to our engagement with them frequently and regularly throughout that period. According to Vinnick, it was only when they began to hear two things simultaneously near the end of 2021 that really galvanized the effort that has led to where they are today. One, that the park was going to be sold to an as-yet-unknown entity, and secondly, the reports from the USDA of the ill health that Toki was in. As word spread within the whale community that the Miami Seaquarium was going to be sold to the Dolphin Company, their corporate office is located in Cancun, Mexico, Vinnick and others officially began to make concerted efforts to contact the new owner and the company's CEO, Eduardo Albor. Unlike previous efforts to communicate with former owners of the Miami Seaquarium, which were wholly unsuccessful, ignored, and stubbornly dismissed, the effort to reach out to the Dolphin Company was successful early on. A representative of the company responded to Vinnick's and others' inquiries, agreeing to meet once the park was sold and they were the new owners. According to Vinnick, they would be prepared to meet with us and visit with us about our interests, and our interests at that time were really about bringing independent veterinarians in to assess Toki's health, because of all we've heard, but had no real data about, and the public was still in the dark. Long story short, in March of 2022, the announcement came that the Dolphin Company had purchased Miami Seaquarium and that they were taking over. A number of us, including Raynell, Ellie, and myself, were in Florida at the time to be there. Enter another key player in the effort to help Skali Chuktanot, Pritam Singh, a wealthy South Florida benefactor who, according to Vinnick, knew the executive producer of the film and had a strong interest in helping improve Skali Chuktanot's conditions at the park. Pritam reached out to Eduardo Albor again, says Vinnick asking if they could discuss the situation about Toki. Eduardo responded to him, and they agreed to meet. The meeting resulted in an agreement to allow an independent veterinarian to visit and assess Toki's health and welfare on a regular basis, which proceeded monthly thereafter. Further conversations following that initial collaboration were unique, says Finnick. The theme of collaboration is what I think is unique for those of us who are supporters of Toki in every way, 
working hand-in-hand with the owners of a marine park, in this case, of Miami Seaquarium, to work together towards the highest quality of life for her, and the objective of moving her back to the waters of the Salish Sea. This unique collaboration over the following year would lead to building further trust and respect between all involved. Historically, cold relations of the past began to warm between the park's trainers and veterinarians and the independent veterinarians and trainers that began to enter the park to work with Skali Chuktanot. A subsequent million-dollar donation by Pritam Singh would not only solidify that collaboration, but also lead to a number of important improvements in Skali Chuktanat's environment. When Pritam Singh personally put up a million dollars to help rebuild the infrastructure in the park, says Finnick, we built new filters for her water filtration system and a new ozone system replacing the chlorine system. So her life support system, as we refer to it, and all her water systems for her environment would be as up-to-date as we could possibly make them. The new water systems allow the staff and veterinarians to control the temperature, adjust the pH, maintain salinity, and all of the features needed to operate a high-quality water system, adds Finnick, even though it's an old system. Another condition following the sale of the park was an agreement between the park and the government to no longer put Skali Chuktanat on public display. To acquire a license to operate the rest of the park, the license from the Department of Agriculture, Animal Plant Health Inspection Services, does not include the tank holding Skali Chuktanat and a Pacific white-sided dolphin companion held with her. Current restrictions are due to the conditions of the whale pool and especially the surrounding stadium superstructure, which has been deemed to not meet current code requirements for Miami-Dade County, who leases the land to the park. According to Vinick, due to these restrictions, there were limits on who can visit and how many people could be in the whale stadium at any one time. With significant progress having been made to improve Skali Chuktanat's health and life support systems, the task ahead was just beginning to shift and focus on Toki and her proposed move to the Salish Sea, when she suddenly passed away Friday. Following her death, Tokite's body was removed Friday evening from the pool by the very sling she was trained to use for her return to her home waters. According to reports, her body was loaded into an ice-packed semi-truck and taken to the University of Georgia, which has the necessary facilities to do a necropsy on the famous orca. At press time, the results of the necropsy had not been released, as it can take several days or more to determine a whale's cause of death. Currently, there are efforts underway by the Lummi Nation and others to bring Tokite's body back to the Pacific Northwest, for either a proper burial or some other way to celebrate her life. New Sheriff, Prosecuting Attorney, Auditor, Take Office Three high-profile San Juan County positions changed leadership this past year. Eric Peter replaced Ron Krebs as County Sheriff. Amy Vera was elected to fill the prosecuting attorney's position vacated by a retiring Randy Gaylord, and Natasha Warmanoven took over from Mylene Henley as chief auditor. 
All three are not new to their departments and bring with them years of experience both with San Juan County and their respective positions. In a hotly contested race, incumbent Sheriff Ron Krebs lost out to Deputy Eric Peter. Peter, who came to San Juan County Sheriff's Office in 2017 as a deputy and was quickly promoted to sergeant in 2018, campaigned on a platform that highlighted Relationships Matter and a commitment to foster a culture to ensure safety, communicate effectively, instill trust, and embrace transparency. Peter, who came to the San Juans from Texas, appreciates the small-town vibe and community awareness that has marked the area for decades. Shortly after assuming office, Peter appointed Mike Hairston as deputy chief and Dave Alexander as the new chief criminal deputy. Both men live on Orcas Island, an issue of importance to Chief Peter. When former San Juan County prosecuting attorney Randy Gaylord started thinking about retirement, he wondered if Vera ever thought about running for PA. Vera, who at the time was working in the county's PA office as a land-use deputy attorney, said the idea never occurred to her. The more I thought about it, however, the more excited I got. She told the journal in a post-election interview in January 2023. Vera moved to San Juan more than a decade ago from Wenatchee, where she practiced law with an emphasis on housing, land use, and municipal law. She also hoped to continue Gaylord's good work and carry on his legacy. The county prosecutor's office provides civil advice to the county council, department heads, and elected officials. The office also works on behalf of the state of Washington on adult and juvenile matters and provides victim services for victims of crime and their families. On a local level, Vera felt that county housing is one of the area's biggest challenges. San Juan's newest county auditor, Natasha Warmenhoven, started a career in accounting when she discovered her original life's job wasn't as a veterinarian. Early classes showed a strong proclivity toward numbers. After she and her husband Chad moved to San Juan in 2019, she applied for the chief auditor's position because it was a perfect match. She was hired and mentored by former auditor Milne Henley, and when COVID hit, quickly learned all aspects of the job. Customer service, recording documents, renewing car tabs, dog licenses, and marriage licenses. She quickly learned that the county auditor's office is a catch-all, handling everything from the county's financials to payroll, grant disbursements to the budget. The auditor's office also ensures fair and impartial elections and commented on the fact that San Juan County's electorate is an engaged community regularly producing some of the highest voter turnout in the state. And this concludes the January 3rd edition of the Island Digest. This edition is brought to you by Orcas Center. Orcas Center is your place for fun and intrigue this winter with music, art openings, classes, and more. To find out more and purchase tickets, visit orcascenter.org. Thank you for listening to the Island Digest. Come back again next week for more local news from San Juan County, Washington. I'm Caleb Summers.